Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist, to focus more on the emotional connection than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. That's Arby's, right? Arby's? No. Chilies. chilies. It's chilies. You mean my ribby back, ribby, baby back, baby back, baby, baby back. back. Not ribby backs. <laughs> not ribby back, not money, money back. Well, I started with money back, money back, money back. And then I tried yeah, to you got go ribby back, which ribby back would actually kind of more make sense. But it's baby back. It's baby ribby back, back, baby back, baby back. <laughs> my ribby back. Baby back. <laughs> you remember ribby that's back, a base. That's back. a baseball song. Give me my I've been watching back, more baseball. Back, yeah. Back, but it, it is. It's chilies. It's chilies. I miss chilies because we don't have any up here. It's really sad. I love their cheese dip. It's like the best cheese dip ever. Okay. Anyway, we're not here to talk about cheese dip. Or chilies. Or chilies. But this movie is fire! Anyway, uh, hello, <laughs> listeners, and welcome to our new episode of the Feelin' Film Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Aaron, and here with me to chat about one of our favorite films from 2019, but with considerably less, like, zero F-bombs is my best friend, co-host, and the only person I'd trust to borrow 100K from to place a big bet on the Lakers, Patrick. If I had 100K, <laughs> I mean, if you I only I had 100K, I would be like, wow, <laughs> that would that would be pretty amazing. I'd probably surprise myself before I gave it to you. You'd be like, I have 100K and you want me to give it to you? That's two surprises in one thought right there. <laughs> you would be like, Hello, give way. me an extra large at sonic and this ice yes tea, right i am i'm getting two ice teas today baby let me just give me the franchise just i'll take the building now. let me give it teas for everybody i can 100 percent see you buying your own sonic franchise just to serve I could your do it. personal drink stop like i could is, do it man <laughs> i could totally do it these are the dreams that you know, lead people to gambling addiction problems. So, <laughs> is it really? <laughs> I, maybe. It really, I, I don't know. <laughs> Probably. A sonic me. dream leads me to a gambling addiction. <laughs> That's a great documentary about my life right there. <laughs> well, we initially were going to be covering the next MCU adventure, Thor Love and Thunder, this week, but my personal distaste for the film would have made it a not fun conversation, regardless of Patrick's feelings. And so we made the decision to try and stay focused on chatting about movies that we enjoy because, frankly, we have a better time, and therefore, we hope that you will too. With that said, this is your spoiler warning. If you have not seen Uncut Gems yet, I suggest you take some time to do that. I don't know if it's still streaming on Netflix, which is where it debuted. Is it? You're it's shaking not. your head. It's, it's not. not. Yeah. Well, that's sad. <laughs> uh, yeah. It's think the Criterion sale is still going on right now. There's a 50% off sale. It usually goes for just a little bit. That's where I picked it up a couple of days ago from. It was like 20 bucks, and the disc set, it's 4K transfer, some great special features, multiple audio commentaries on there, and it looks really good in 4K. I highly recommend it. For 20 bucks. It's, it's a steal. So if you can't find it streaming anywhere, it's worth a blind buy, in my opinion. So you're getting my stamp of approval. Bam. But anyway, like I said, if you haven't seen it, please... Check it out before you listen to this conversation. All right. So, Patrick, I wanted to start by talking about kind of the main thing that everybody comes out of this movie talking about. And, and that's kind of related to the style of the filmmaking. So before we discuss anything at all with regards to story and plot and characters and 
such, I wanted to kind of go into how this movie makes you feel <laughs> as a viewer. This is feeling film, after all. Can you remember back to the first time you saw it and how it affected you? I'm, I'd like to hear about that, but I'll tell you mine as well. And then I'm also curious kind of how we both reacted to it on a rewatch, knowing what to expect. So I'll, I'll throw it to you and let you go first, and then I'll give you my reactions after you're done. Yeah, 2019 came out. I think this was one of the, the screeners that we'd gotten, and it was, a, it was a chance to catch it early. I remember watching it, feeling dirty, feeling very kind of like gross <laughs> afterwards, and kind of hating you for making me uh, just watch this <laughs> Sorry. movie. And kind of, kind of really looking at you for the next few days, like, I don't think we need to be friends anymore. And uh, <laughs> and then I didn't watch it again, but I remembered enough about it when we were talking about doing it for this episode that it was really a, a movie that was really in your face. And it's it's one of those movies that sort of lives in the same place that a movie like American History X does, where you can appreciate it for everything that it's doing. And there's this but this level of discomfort from start to finish that you are feeling sort of like a train wreck. You're watching this train wreck happen with these characters and there's this despair. Like there's really no feeling of redemption throughout. There's revenge and there's sort of comeuppance. But this is a movie that you never have a sense of honest hope for. And it's hard to watch. It was hard to watch the second time around because I want that. I want to feel like I can have a happy day after watching this and i remember thinking i should probably just watch seeing street once i finish this one to really kind of get me out of this this <laughs> funk text that I'm in. yeah <laughs> and it, it was just but it's not something that i'm like this movie's awful this movie makes me feel awful and it's supposed to because of everything that's going on in it there are so many layers of corruption of despair of hopelessness that it has a lot to say and if you can get through that and enjoy it in a really kind of an air quote kind of way of saying enjoy it, you can really find some cool stuff to reflect on and observe, as we'll probably get into. But both times I had that same kind of impact. Like there was nothing different both times going, yeah, that felt less impactful or that felt less um overbearing for me. I, I really felt probably because of the distance, we're talking about a three-year stint of watching it for the first time and then watching it for the second. I think that helped. But both times I got a similar feeling walking away, just feeling very distant from everything. Like I felt like, wow, there are parts of this movie that I definitely connect with and I'm afraid. I, I got a sense of fear as I was watching it. Like, man, is that going to happen to me? Now, obviously I'm not I don't have a gambling addiction and I'm not involved with a New York mafia and <laughs> I definitely don't know Kevin Garnett, but I, I there were parts of the story that resonated with me and it made me feel like, wow, that, that could be me if I really let things happen where I wasn't in control, where I wasn't able to really get my senses in order and didn't have an anchor of a family. All those things I think I sit with and felt like, those are the big things that ca that I came away feeling as I, I left this last viewing. So does that answer your question? I think so. Yeah. I mean, for sure. That, <laughs> that's it. a very good 
explanation for how you feel. I mean, that's it's going to be different for each person. And I am similar in that I haven't seen it again since that initial viewing either. Yeah, I had sat with it and I actually was a bit nervous after I suggested it and we decided to cover it about the fact that I was like, wow, I really, I'm going to, okay, I guess I'm going to go buy this movie. It was a five-star movie. It was in both of our top tens for the year, so I'm, I must love it. But I have this real issue with memory as I've been getting into my 40s. And so I, you know, I, I remember how it made me feel, but I didn't remember the details of that kind of A to Z experience. And so it was a little bit of a kind of, okay, I, is it going to work for me again? Or am I going to dislike it this time around? I wasn't 100% sure. So when I came out of the first time, I remember I wrote some, I'm going to read what I wrote, which was kind of my blurb for the movie uh, and what is re- relative to how I felt about it from a like physical feeling. And I, I said this, probably the movie I love the most, but don't actively love to watch, question mark. Remember to breathe. This is an experience. And I spelled out like E dash X dash because I was trying to be real cool with my writing. I said, this is a one of a kind stylish anxiety attack that captures the highs and lows of compulsive gambling like I've never seen before. It often feels like complete chaos and manic screaming of dialogue throughout. It's terrifying to watch unfold like a horror movie without the slashing or supernatural and the gigantic breath I finally took at the end is like the greatest gasp of air I'd ever had. So that is in line with my memory of my first experience with this movie, which was a hold your breath, anxiety attack kind of experience where I felt like it was going 90 to nothing from start to finish. I was so terrified of what was going to happen and and it felt like it was just escalating nonstop all the way to the end. And that is how most people talk about this movie and the way in which kind of they reference it, right, is that feeling. This viewing, I didn't feel quite that way at all. I definitely still felt and and was aware of the anxiety inducing nature of the filmmaking and i and i and i even probably more appreciative of it this time around but because i knew the ending which is a bit of a kind of thud literally uh, a sudden like oh it, it it just it's like everything perfect and positive happens and then everything negative it's all at once right within a matter of like seconds And I think knowing what was happening was a big part of why I didn't feel like it was just a constant escalation this time. But I also was much more aware, Patrick, of some quiet moments that are placed throughout the movie that actually slow it down a bit. For example, there's the scene at, I almost said bar mitzvah because we were talking about cha-cha real smooth. We got something going on with Jewish films recently. But uh, the Passover dinner that they had, it's a relatively quiet scene where things slow down for a bit. There's some talking, and there's a couple of moments like that. There's not a ton. It's usually Howard hustling through life, trying to get what he wants to go down and get away from what he is trying to to run away from, which is responsibility and debt. But I just, I didn't quite have that same feeling, but I definitely was as as respectful of the anxiety inducing nature of this as I 
ever could be. And, and I would say that it's that first experience that is unlike any other. And for me, I loved watching it more, I think, the second time because I was less invested. I, I don't know, how, not invested, but I was so locked into that character the first time because that's what the movie wants you to do. It wants you to latch on to Howard as you're going through it and be on this roller coaster ride with him. And they do such a fantastic job of using music and framing shots and and those kind of the way the editing is working in its favor to be so frenetic and like keep you with him in his like view and in in his bubble. And this time I guess just maybe it's just cuz I knew like I said everything was going to happen. I don't know. I was able to look at it differently. So did you have some of that at all or did you did you feel the exact i mean you said you know you kind of it wasn't quite as grimy but like did you feel that anxiety in the same way i did and i think it's because of the distance and because this was a really great movie but not one that i wanted to revisit like consciously it's one that i would but not one that is a cha-cha real smooth that i'm like i definitely want to watch that again or even elvis uh, you know i was talking to you earlier today i'm excited to go with my dad to see it for a second time this is not one that I would be excited to go see over and over again, partly because of the way it makes me feel initially, but in a weird way, I don't want that feeling to diminish every time I watch it. Like I don't want to become desensitized to the impact that a movie like this is making on me, which is why I don't watch American History X on repeat. One, because that's just weird. And you know, if you're listening and you do that, then you know, whatever. I'm I'm not going to judge, but that would be weird for me, and it would just kind of make me feel like less of a person. It's just an impactful movie like that. Same thing with a movie like Crash, or you know, these these movies that really have you know, Passion of the Christ, another great movie that I only saw once because I felt like if you watch it more than once, it just it loses the impact and the emphasis that it's having on you. And I think that Uncut Gems brings with it a really artistic rawness. And I don't know that I can explain that in a way that makes a lot of sense, but I feel like because of the way that the camera moves, because of the overlapping dialogue, just the chaoticness of it, it feels as though you're just walking through two plus hours of this guy's life as he is just boom, 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 boom. And you're right. You have pockets of of breathing. So for me, I don't know that my feeling changed as much. I, I didn't like you longer. Like it was the same distance. So I, I it only took like two days to get over the fact that I didn't like you after watching this as opposed to like three or four the first time. <laughs> Just kidding. No, but the fact is, I think I felt the same way. And I in in my experience, I'd probably want to revisit this again in like three years so that I can re-experience it, but not feel like it's just something that I would have to go through over and over again. Perfect. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I don't think it'll be one that I rewatch a ton, although I do want to get back to it pretty quickly, I think, because I want to see the listen to the audio commentaries of it, which I could do without it won't feel the same as going through it, like watching it invested as a film. So anyway, let's talk about plot. Let's talk about the actual story here that we are dealing with, which is Howard has a gambling problem. And he's in debt and he continues to try and get out of debt by gambling, (laughs) despite multiple occasions of escalating violence against him for not being able to pay off multiple debts. 
and he completely ignores opportunities that he has that actually come along to give him the opportunity to make that money issue go away. And so I wanted to kind of go into this and talk a little bit about his addictive personality, how it was portrayed, how you feel about the way that gambling consumes a person, was it relatable at all? For me, I 100% completely understand the Howard persona, while never, I don't think, ever having been close to that, or I don't feel like I ever would be close to that, but I have had a very addictive obsessively compulsive type of personality for most of my life. And so I don't do things small. I tend to do things big and it can get me into trouble. And it has, you know, I'll be very honest. It's led to a lot of bad financial decisions in my twenties and thirties that has taken me a long time to grow up and start to move past, thankfully. But it was more of a like, Oh, Hey, I, have a see a thing want a thing like i'm gonna get the thing i want doesn't matter if i can afford it right now because you know credit exists greatest invention in american history and so you just kind of get into this habit of doing things and and honestly and of getting away with it i think is a big element here where you tend to be able to just get by and the consequences start to not feel as big of a deal because the dopamine hit that you get when you achieve or, or you know acquire the thing that you want is so pleasurable it's worth whatever sacrifice you don't do it con you almost don't do it consciously right and I, and I feel like Howard is very much that kind of character where he is at the point in his life where he is starting to just this is his natural reflex action like he doesn't even think twice or he doesn't stop and pause and run the numbers or talk to anybody about alternative options. He's just like immediately, hey, I got this money and I could go pay him off. He's like, let me get to the bookie quick because I got to make a bet, right? Got to turn a little bit of profit into a big profit. And it was a very good examination, I think, of how gambling can consume a person. And how the appeal of turning a small win into a big win, of chasing that so-called dream, can easily get you into just bigger and bigger and bigger problems. And I think for Howard, part of it is also that Arno is his brother-in-law. And I don't know if you even caught that. Because I don't remember if there is a piece of dialogue that states it or not. I figure there must be, and I just missed it. But when I was reading the casting decision, or the, when I was watching a casting behind the scenes making of kind of featurette, they were talking about this and how, you know, they kept saying Arno is you know, his brother-in-law or whatever. And that it, he's listed as that as well on the Wikipedia page. And, I, and that kind of made a lot of sense for me as to why Howard was, I guess, taking the threats that the heavy, the the big guys that were with Arno, that they were kind of invoking on him, he didn't seem to quite be as scared of them as I guarantee you I would have been, Patrick, had they 
kidnapped me, beat me up, and left me naked in my trunk. Like at that, I, I probably wouldn't have gotten to that part. I you know, probably would have been like, you know, punching me in the mouth, you know, the first time or something. But like when we got to the trunk part, I think my fear factor would have been off the charts. But I'm wondering if part of this is, you know, it's his brother-in-law, and so maybe he doesn't think anything is going to happen to him. But he, he, this is the persona that he put puts forth is that it's a mix of like having this addictive personality with this idea that I'm almost invincible. Like no matter how bad it gets, it's never going to completely fall apart. My wife will still talk to me. Maybe there's a chance we can still get back together. Like there's always like this hope that he has. And it makes him such a tragic character that I feel very torn about because part of me roots for him. And part of me is like, man, this guy is a piece of crap as a human being <laughs> and treats everybody around him for the most part without respect because he puts himself first and therefore ends up putting them in danger or in positions that whether they know it or not are lesser than they should be. So anyway, all of this stems from his gambling addiction, which it, I think it's a great movie that shows it's like an extension of the worm character in rounders, right? Worm, all he had to do was go to prison, you know, originally. I think he's, he's getting out of prison, right, when he gets picked right. up. But, yeah. yeah. And so it, it's like it's like that character only, like, escalated over this whole movie and with a much, you know, with a big bank role of having your own diamond business behind it. Yeah. The, the thing that makes Howard's character really interesting is the fact that he has those things. So he has what I would say is a fairly successful jewelry store. And he's got some side hustles going on with his buddy who apparently like he brings the, he brings the people in, sells them some watches. And then his buddy gets like a what 20% cut or something like that. So it's not a, I don't know if it's necessarily a true, like legit jewelry store business, but it's not like an alleyway kind of store. I mean, he's got, (laughs) he's got security cameras and he's got security doors. So it feels legitimate. And so when you go into this movie for the first time and you get introduced to him, it's so jarring to see that there's this duality of, is your jewelry store not doing good that you have to do all this other stuff? But I think it's just as you're you're talking about, Aaron, I won't rehash all that, but his gambling addiction is independent of his business. And I think that the way he gambles is different than someone who would go into a gas station and just put $20 down on lottery tickets every week. Like that's something that I would see all the time at one of my old jobs. You'd have four or five people that every paycheck, every week, they'd pull $20 from that and they'd all just go buy lottery tickets. And then if they happen to win, which they haven't yet, and this has been seven, eight, nine years now that they're doing this, then they would just split the winnings. The thing about that though, is not only is it a smaller cut it's also not strategic. And I think that's where Howard's addiction really gets fueled is that he really feels like he can control the outcome because the way he bets those things that he actually, it's not like he's saying, Hey, I want the Celtics to win the to win the game. So I'm going to put a hundred grand on a victory. No, he gets so complex that in some ways as an audience, unless we know the world of gambling and Vegas and odds and all the types of things you wouldn't, you would just assume that, man, he's got he's got some insight. He knows what's going on. 
But the fact is, he knows the lingo. He's experienced in it. He definitely knows how to lose because he's in debt when we meet him for the first time. But I think the fact that the way in which he bets is so complicated, I think it makes him get a false sense of control. Like he actually could control the outcome. Not that he can control who gets the opening tip or who's going to get the most rebounds or who's going to win the win the game. But the fact that he can actually put a certain amount of money on one thing and then fall back on something else. It's like when you go to a horse race and you don't just bet on the winner, you box it or you pick one, two, or you pick one, two in any order or one, two, three in any order. It gives you a sense of grace. It gives you a sense of a security blanket and a comfort zone of like, okay, look, these guys are going off at these kinds of odds. So even if I don't pick the favorite, I can at least put them in the top three. It won't give me as much, but at least I'll feel like I've won something. And that's what I think is another component of his addiction is that the more he complicates his bets, the more options he has, the less he's going to feel about putting down $10,000, losing nine, but gaining three. You know, he's like, okay, cool. I did that. Let me do that again. Except this time, let me do that same thing, but let me double instead of the three grand that I won. Let me go ahead and put six on there. And it's just this vicious cycle. That opening scene, uh, apart from the, the, the mining scene, the first scene with him is so amazing because you see all the ins and outs of his world not only as a legitimate businessman, but also as this sort of underground gambler who constantly has to be a part of the action. And in some ways, I feel like addiction is sort of a, an extension of FOMO, where we have whether it's gambling or, or not. It's I mean, it is. It's it's a FOMO is a character trait of an addiction because you feel like you're not going to access the thing in which you can you can gain. Like we were watching, my family and I were watching a game show tonight. We were watching Press Your Luck and we were rooting for this woman who had gotten all the way up to 200K without hitting a whammy. And then she finally did. And we're feeling a little lost for her. But there's a part of me who's like, good, because she doesn't need to win all that money anyway. Why? Because I felt like, man, if I were on that game show, I mean, I should be getting that money. That's easy money right there. So all those different things that go into, I think, what we see about Howard, it's not just an easy way out because you're just laying money down and, and making a choice. I think it's that he feels that sense of control and it numbs him to the world around him. It numbs him to his business. It numbs him to the relationships that he's got with his bookies and with these guys that he's paying money, owing money from. And the fact is we see two big bets, one that pays off, one that's blocked, which oh, broke my heart when I heard that, when I found that, <laughs> when we find that out. And all we, that's all we see. We don't see all the losses that added up to that giant debt that he was out of like, was it a hundred K or something like that? And yeah, so roughly. It's, yeah. But he owes so money I, I to multiple people. Like that's the thing. Like he's, there's multiple people trying to collect money from him throughout the film. Yeah. Like different groups <laughs> are coming to him. So he's, it paints a picture yeah. of a guy who, you know, this addiction is not just with one loan shark. Like he has, mm -hmm. He clearly what he does is, you know, he owes one and so he goes and he gets like just like what he does with Kevin Garnett's ring. He gets the ring, right. so he goes and he pawns the ring to make a bet. So he can and then he like pays somebody off with a fake Rolex because he's is like trying to like he's basically like trying to bide his time and move from it's like taking yeah. you know, you're paying off one thing. Um, while taking on more debt in another thing, you're never actually kind of 
truly addressing the problem. You're just you're treading yeah. water essentially. It's a, it's a moving goalpost is what it is because never do we hear or see, and I think it's by design. What's Howard's end game? Is it to pay off these bookies? No, it's not. Because if it was, he would have had the money. He would have absolutely Multiple had times. the money. Yeah. <laughs> Multiple times. And, be- yes. you know, Garnett was guaranteeing him 175K. He had 165 yeah. that he could have, if by the end of the movie, before we get to that big bet, he could have just done it. He could have paid it off. And you know what I thought about when you thought about Worm? I thought about Mike and the fact that he was halfway to paying off Petrovsky with this right. one bet that mm-hmm. he made to K- Teddy KGB. He made the same decision, except he knew how to play. He knew how to play the game. It was a different game altogether, but it's the same kind of thing. It's like, what if, what if, you know what? I could do this. I could do this. And we essentially get the same outcome in terms of a payoff. Now we don't get the same outcome in terms of what happened to the person who won uh, with him just getting blown away right after he wins. But I think that it speaks to this idea that gambling provides a false opportunity to win. And that sounds so duh, like the house always wins. But the fact is when you're deep into that and we've experienced it occasionally, especially with big payoffs, like that big parlay that he thought he had, but it was blocked. That's just going to, that's just going to fuel him to do it again because he had success. Even if it was success that actually didn't happen. I'm glad you brought that up because I wanted to talk about that a minute. And I and I think everything you're saying about the gambling and the describing about him is so on point with specifically the way he seems to gamble and how strategic it is. And, you know, specifically in this case, it's almost like an inside trader, to be honest, because he has this personal interaction with Kevin Garnett. No one else on the planet knows that Kevin Garnett is holding a black opal straight from an Ethiopian mine that is, in his mind at least, worth like a million dollars that Kevin Garnett feels is a magic property rock that is going to give him luck. No one else on the planet has this information. So for him to place bets, it literally was making me think about insider trading. And because he's betting on Garnett, right? Like that's what he's, he's essentially, it's all related to the fact that Garnett's going to go off. And so... When he does, and like you said, on that six-bet parlay, like that is crazy. And for anyone who doesn't understand gambling, and I think they do explain it at one point. It's a good scene where I think it might be the second one where Julia is taking the ticket for him. I think at yeah, one point some character one. is like, you know how this works. These all have to hit for you to win or something. But anyway, yeah. you know, for people who may not understand that very well, like – each and every part of your bet has to it can, you can't get five or six it doesn't matter you don't get five six of the payout like you get zero of the payout so it's either all or nothing and so the more things you add to a parlay the more exponential the the potential winnings become because it the odds are obviously just evaporating <laughs> the more you add to it it gets such and such harder to do and so then I think that's where it comes from, that he, he does. He feels like he has this inside track, and especially in the second bet. And when he makes it, because it, it is pretty crazy, and I want to talk about this, because he's got a three-item parlay on this. It's Celtics must win the opening tip, Garnett has to have 26 points plus rebounds, and the Celtics have to win. So two of these, Patrick, 
for anybody who knows anything about basketball, are really good bets. Like Garnett is a star player at this point. It's a series that he's dominating. You could even go and like go into depth about the series that they're using to portray in this film, how it's against the 76ers and the 76ers at the time had Elton Brand and Spencer Hawes and so at center. And so that was really no matchup for Garnett. Like you could go into detail and really talk yourself into understanding like 26 points and rebounds is in a game seven and Garnett has the rock like for good luck again because he, he had a great game with the rock and then he took it away and he tanked. And so now he has it again. So you're, you're obviously it's the rock. He's going to do great. So that's a fantastic bet. I think. Celtics win. I mean, again, game seven, Garnett playing great. You have to expect that is a pretty strong bet. The Celtics must win the opening tip is insane. That is an absolute, and especially because your bet wins or loses or can can lose like before the other two even have an opportunity to happen. Yeah, This is a 50-50 shot. It's like flipping a coin. For a million dollars. And the bet is crazy. And and I love it because it's got to be crazy to be entertaining. <laughs> you know, it's got to be this wild. He's betting 155 k to win $1.2 And I think in part of, you know, the other side of, or the other thing that is, you know, fueling him in addition to like what you're talking about, where he believes he can control it and he's addicted to it is also, I think, that feeling of being wronged. Like, he always, he when he, that rock comes into his shop at the beginning of the film, he believes that he has a stone that at the beginning of this movie, he is going to take it to an auction the next morning, okay, before any of these things happen. He's going to take it to the auction the next morning. He is going to sell it on Friday, I believe it is, so two days later, for $1 million, because that's what the valuation is, he's going to pay off his debts, and he will be rich. Like, that is, going into this movie, it feels to me like that's what Howard believes is about to happen, right, with his life. So I think he feels so wronged, and, and that amazingly acted, horrible to watch scene, where he is, like, lambasting the auction lady, and also MVP of a movie that woman who plays the desk person she's oh, the receptionist fed, yeah she's so, she's good, so good in like two scenes yeah. just the way yeah. she is uh, dude the, the facial expressions she gives him are just brilliant but <laughs> but it, i think he feels so wrong like he he really believed that it was just going to be that simple and so i think despite having 155k that even at that point after everything that had gone wrong he could have literally handed it to arno who was standing right there in his shop and it and walk away he wanted he needed the 1.2 million to feel right and feel like he was correct to make make it feel like that's what essentially this whole thing was worth up 1 million dollars to him and therefore because he wouldn't have had as much of a of gain i think he says at one point you know he paid kevin garnett presses him on it and he he says he made $100,000 or paid $100,000 right and so he would wouldn't make much of a profit even if he would be getting himself out of it debt so i think getting the one million it was such a key for him and yeah anyway i think the bet's nuts because of the opening tip thing but it, yeah. it definitely makes it exciting tv and we get that great line of course like this is where it comes in where he's making that bet and he tells kevin he's like this is how i win and i and i love so that line became a meme 
after this movie, right? Everybody was like doing the head nod like he does. He's like, this is how I win, right? And everybody's like kind of copying that. But I love that scene in context because he actually is kind of, he almost gives like a monologue to Kevin before it. And he's like explaining, he says, you know, it's like you. And it simultaneously, I don't know if he's doing it on purpose. I, I like to think he is. But I feel like he's hyping Kevin up because he knows he's going to go bet on him. And he's trying to he's trying to make Kevin have a chip on his shoulder. And he's like, it's just like you. You're not going to go into a game seven and get dominated by these chumps. You're going to go out there and you're going to play your butt off and you're going to dominate. You're going to win this game because that's what you do, because that's how you win. And then he was like, and this is how I win, because I'm going to bet on you when you go win, <laughs> you know, and yeah. I, I just love that scene. Oh yeah, it's just another extension of his apparent control, and you know, perceived or otherwise. At that point, he believes that Kevin it's his robot, and and the because the fact is, Aaron, nothing about what he said should deter Kevin Garnett from having a crappy game. I mean, Kevin Garnett has nothing against him. He has the Rock. He's going to have a great game according to his superstitious beliefs, and he is absolutely manipulating him. And I think at one point during that conversation, he says, you and me, Kevin, you and me, you and me, Kevin. He makes it about, we're going to take on the world. We're going to show these guys. I'm going to show the bookies and all these people that have wronged me how I can win. And you're going to show the 76ers and the world in the NBA how great you are. And so he, he creates this alliance with Kevin Garnett, who is probably looking at him like, dude, you're crazy. You're crazy, man. And I, I mean, I think that he's just... I think that's how he feels he's good. Like in that moment with just like he has that chip on his shoulder, he's trying to put that chip on Kevin's shoulder and being able to manipulate the situation, I think is a huge strength of his. And we see it throughout the the movie, sometimes played for laughs, sometimes not, but he is a an incredible salesman. Like the ability of him to be able to kind of work through like how he was talking about getting the ring and how to when he was going to pawn it the way he was trying to get the money for that and be able to convince the the guy at the pawn shop to give him more than it was worth you know sentimental value this is kevin garnett's ring and by the way i just you know if i step outside myself and i think that guy didn't even flinch when he said this is kevin garnett's championship ring like i would be asking where did you get that where did you but apparently this is the kind of stuff that he brings in uh, same thing with that was that that cross with <laughs> the gold cross that he sold for like 20k. It's just it's business. And, you know, seeing how he does that inside and outside the jewelry store, it's all about salesmanship. And that plays itself out so well in that conversation with Garnett. And it almost seems to play itself out during that last sequence where the game's happening and the guys in the in the glass like foyer are watching it play out and like, wow, he really did do that. Of course, it didn't convince certain people. Uh, but the fact is, I think that's where where Howard thought his strength was in the ability to manipulate, the ability to control, to sell. And I think he thought he could lay that in on top of gambling when in actuality, gambling is all about chance and it's all about its decision making. Sure. But at the end of the day, you don't control where the cards fall. You don't control the roulette wheel. You don't control how a horse is going to run. You look at tendencies. You you 
do your research. And so there is some skill that goes into it, but you don't control it. That's the thing is the decisions you make are what's in your hand. And when it comes to gambling on sports, you have zero control, zero, because you don't, you're not on the court. You're not in the baseball field. You're not doing those things. And I think that's where he was misguided for himself. He thought he could because of that insider trading type of approach that you mentioned, Aaron. It's like he has this, I know Kevin, I can call him KG. By the way, I just, I love hearing him talk. It's so good. He is just fantastic in this. Sandler. Uh, but I, yes, it's just, yeah. I, I, I just, yeah, we'll get there. But the fact is, I think because he knew Kevin Garnett, because he had a connection with him, because he has that sort of tangibility with him, he thought he could actually change the game. And maybe he could, but it didn't change the outcome for him because it didn't change his problems. It didn't change, as you exactly. mentioned, the people. Yeah. And I think that same thing that other people had chips on their shoulder towards him. And I think that's why what happened at the end happened. It didn't matter if he won or lost. It was over. Being locked in that in that glass foyer was enough for him. Right. And then, boom. And that, and that was it's, it. And I think that's kind of... Yeah, go ahead. It, well, I was just going to say, like, it's how you treat people. And that's... It's how you win, right? And, and there's a point where I want to say it's Kevin Garnett who says it. I had it written down somewhere in my notes, actually. It's during... I want to... Be, I believe it's during the final, like press conference when they're interviewing Kevin Garnett afterwards, you know, after the game or whatever. But I feel like he says, when you win, that's all that matters. And it's a great stinger, almost a satirical line that comes after Howard's already been shot and Arno has been shot and killed as well and are laying there dead. And these thugs are robbing him blind because Kevin is there saying when you win, that's all that matters. Right. And we're being clearly shown like when you win, that's not all that matters. And that, and how you win matters because you took the, the opportunity to ignore these people for so long. And you, no matter how you feel about the type of business that Howard was doing with these being loan sharks and potential, potential mafia guys, etc. He made a deal to that he should have to uphold, right? And he chose not to do that. And so there comes a point where there's a cost. And unfortunately in this world, the cost was his life. And so it became more than about just winning. And it turns yeah. what he says in that famous memed line, this is how I win into kind of a second meaning type of thing where it's like, yeah, this is how you win and you won, but how you won is what got you killed. Right. I think, yeah. Yeah. It reminded me of a little callback to the very beginning of the movie where Howard comes into the shop and he sees those guys over in the corner it's busy and he offers them water and he insists on giving them water and that dude gets pissed and it's played for laughs. It's like, we didn't want any water. Why'd you do that? And I think that was the start of a disrespect in terms of relationship. I've asked you 
not to do this. I've said, I don't want it. Respect what I'm asking for. And I think that was bookended with the gunshot where you have to be able to not only play the game, but play the game appropriately. And if you're cheating or if you are gaming the system, if you're not respecting the game in terms of gambling, if there's a way to do that, you you do lose respect. And in this case, you lose your life. And I think that's part of what the film was talking about, which is you have to be able to maintain your integrity in what you're doing, whether it's how you run a shop, whether it's how you gamble your money. And there's almost like this mysterious code that he just refused to follow because it was all about, well, as long as I've got the money, I can bet whatever I want, which I think is what makes the block of that first bet so significant because it was it was not his money that he was he was gambling with. It was somebody else's. And you think on the surface, well, does it really matter? He just tripled or quadrupled his money so he could just pay you back. No, it's the respect that is lost. It's not you can you can lose with integrity or you can win without integrity and i think that is the big thing that we pull from this is that howard in all of his misgivings and all of his stuff he never respected the people that he was doing business with the auction the auction section of the movie is a great example of that he never respected the who was it, the caretaker whoever it was that was in charge of the auction to send over the opal in time to get it properly appraised. She said, we had two days to get this and our, our appraisers, the best in the business. And that's what he appraised it for. And he wouldn't buy it. He was like, no, 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 no. If I had done it, if I had done it. And she's like, you didn't though. You didn't. And this is what you're getting for it. I actually believe that had he respected her, had he not just given what he needed to in the right amount of time, but had he had some kind of better personal relationship with this person, she would have given him a better appraisal. She would have given him more time. But it's just a that's just a great example of how he treats the people. He's just a leech is what he is in some ways, where he's like, okay, I need you for this. And once I get it, I'm just going to move on to the next person. And like, no, 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 no. It doesn't work that way. You got to leave some respect on the table. And that's what I think got him killed. Yeah, 100% agree. And it's played beautifully because you see that guy i think his name is uh, i had it written down again totally forgot what it is uh, i think it's phil the main heavy nico's the kind of smaller guy you can see on his face like it is <laughs> the whole time he's in that box man he's not interested in the game and the bet in the slightest the other guys are kind of every once in a while they're like What's the score? You know, they're kind of like, they're really frustrated to be in there, but then they start to think about the fact that like, okay, this guy could be winning big, right? Which is going to obviously get us paid and probably, you know, we're going to end up getting a little more than we even were owed in the first place, most likely when he gets this big payday. And so they kind of almost, you can tell they're like almost starting to root for it, whether it's selfishly or just because they're caught up in it. Phil never wavers, dude. And he doesn't get mad and scream he stops and and i think that's when you know too and movies have taught us that when the villain gets to the point that they just become stoic and are done yelling at you then it's over like he 
it wasn't surprising to me that that was his reaction, not in the slightest, right? It happens in a jarring fashion when he walks out and kills Howard as far as the way it's shot in a filmmaking way, but from a plot perspective, not even a you know inch of like surprise for that. It was just like, oh, yep. Kind of had that coming, unfortunately, <laughs> as much as I yep. liked you. Kind of liked I you. That- I don't know. I just, I think the one thing that that I was a little troubled by was you have his death, and then you had the looting of the store, and I wasn't sure if that was just out of like frustration that they were doing that because clearly, you know, he had the money, or whoever is going to be his next of kin has the money, so they're going to get their their payout. Was it just to was was it just spiteful or was it them just saying, look, this is, you know, we're going to take everything from you outside your life. I wasn't quite understanding what that was about. I believed it was their thugs, first of all. And so I don't think we live in a world where these guys weren't thieves as well in general. And so I think it comes naturally. They weren't going to get part of this payout because this payout was not, going to come, I mean, what are they going to do? Chase down Julia and hassle her for the money, maybe? I guess possibly they might go that far or go that route, but it's not like they were, they had a legitimate, it's not like they were going to go to probate court and be like, okay, by the way, out of this 1.2 yeah, million, he owes us 150000 because we're a loan shark. You know what I mean? So I feel like they were just getting their money back and then probably gotcha. on top of getting their money back, why wouldn't you take a blinged out Furby? Like, come on. Also, I don't know if you caught the line where uh, Damani, played by Lakeith Stanfield, is explaining to Kevin Garnett that he actually, Howard, he, Howard, he created that Furby. Like, he put the the bling into the Furby and and even, like, made it so it had the, like, shifting eyes and stuff. I thought that was kind of a neat touch. I hadn't remembered that from the first viewing. Like that Howard yeah. was actually he and and it kind of it, it adds to the tragedy a bit because it like shows you like he has a bit of a creativity to him and a and a, a bit of a skill that goes beyond just being this salesperson. Like he made this thing that is really cool and interesting and it, and it shows you a piece of his personality that we don't get to see anywhere else. And it kind of makes you wonder like, well, what if? What if this guy's entire life was devoted to like straight creation of interesting high-end jeweled items like he could have real market on this diamond row that actually exists in new york and and he could be something you know and so i don't know it was kind of it was just an interesting little nugget to me but i did want to talk about like in general and we can maybe pull his family situation into this but did you have any empathy for him did you find yourself at any point rooting for him and along with that i ask you to think about this do you think he cared about his family meaning his wife and his kids or do you think he actually loved his employee slash girlfriend julia i think he's someone who like everybody needs connection with with someone and based off of what we see in the movie when he finds out that she has apparently cheated on him with the weekend, which is such a goofy name for a hip hop artist, but whatever. You know how it's spelled, um, by the way. Have you seen how it's spelled? 
I don't know. I don't know. It's, it's W E E K N D. I've always hated it because it. I've only typed it a couple times in my life, but it always breaks autocorrect because it's not <laughs> spelled so correctly. Dumb. I know Canadians, <laughs> man. Canadians. What are you gonna do? <laughs> um, I don't know that I ever felt sorry for him. I felt like because of his addiction, it blinded him and clouded every aspect of his familial kind of world. His older son, I think he had some connection with, but it was in such a crappy way. It was due to bets. Like that's where they bonded. And I guess in some ways you can say, yeah, that's what we have. You get this father son relationship, but his youngest son was completely neglected. And that scene where he's quote, putting his son to bed and he's watching the game. I mean, no, don't do that. I mean, and the thing is though, Aaron, is I've, I've done things similar to that. Like I've been trying to put my son to bed and I've gotten so distracted with other things that he's not the priority. And I think that's, if I had any empathy, that would be because of relational empathy. Like I've done that and it reminds me, and I put that in present tense. It reminds me that I've got to be with everything, but specifically family stuff, be fully present. Like I can't be on my phone while I'm watching a movie with my wife. I can't be on my phone or uh, thinking about other stuff while I'm you know, reading to my son in bed. And because you know, he's in an age right now where he can call that stuff out. And to imagine myself on the floor, completely wrapped up in a game because I've got money on it. I mean, that's just wrong. So I don't have empathy for him, but it's a harsh reminder that as parents, we have things that unfortunately take priority over our children. And sometimes they bleed into that time when they need us the most. So I, I, I think from that standpoint, I connect with him, unfortunately. Yeah, I related for very similar reasons to the exact same scene. And I thought back to a time in my life where, and this, and it was harmful to my family. I mean, it did a number on my family situation at the time and led to some serious fallout. And that was an addiction to video games that I completely could not see. Right. And that's part of this that we, I don't know if we actually mentioned it when we're talking about gambling and addiction, but you get to this point where you don't, you can't see it. Like it, you're, you're blind to it. It's not like you're making a conscious decision every single time that's clear where you're going through the pros and the cons and you're thinking to yourself, oh, here's all of the negative aspects of the potential decision I'm about to make. You just, it's a reflexive action. And I had gotten that way with video games to the point where I had a baby and second kid who was a baby. And, you know, I would just get locked into playing a video game all night long. And my wife would go to bed and with the babies and like do the thing and put the kids to sleep. And I'd be like, and it was literally at one point civilization. And so it made sense for this meme to be the applicable, but it was like one more turn, one more turn, one more turn. And then. Two hours later, it's like midnight or 1230 at night, like, and I'm crawling into bed, and I didn't understand. I was so addicted to my thing that I needed to do, that I felt so compelled by, that to me, like, I was not noticing what was happening around me, which was somebody else that was struggling to put things together and was tired and needed assistance and wanted some attention and all of these other things. And so I think... I see so much of that in Howard, right? I see 
how easy it is. And and so I like you, I had some empathy in those moments, but it was less of an empathy for him than it was it was almost more of a I don't know, man. I I don't know what the word is, but like I felt I felt bad that he, he couldn't see it. It, it was I hated it yeah. for his family, though, more mm-hmm. than anything. Like, because, you know, they didn't deserve that. And you see multiple kids. You know, one of his kids, the only connection we see him really even have with that kid, he we see him twice. The first one is he goes into his room. The kid's, like, tossing a basketball around, talking about betting. And Howard's essentially encouraging him, giving him advice right. on how to bet, yeah. which is horrific. And then the second one is he accompanies Howard when he goes up to his apartment and he finds out, like, basically that his dad's got a girlfriend. He's like, the guy said that there was a girl here. Was it mom? <laughs> and, and, and Howard's like, no. And, like, those are the two interactions we see with him and his kids, man. And, yeah, from an outsider perspective, it's really easy to judge. And so I don't have empathy in that I feel like he's in the right in any way, shape, or form. I just hate the yeah. fact that he can't see the forest for the trees. And he and there is a point where I believe some honesty comes through, and, and this is how it always works. I think Patrick, like this is how it worked for me. It was largely too late by the time that those things became my eyes became clear to my problems and what I was causing. I had too much damage had been done, and Howard gets to this point where he goes to his wife and he's like, "I don't want the divorce. Like I don't." want to do this thing right but i don't really think he ever has the the true vision of what he he's causing and I, and i honestly don't think he cares i think that there's just too much selfishness in him and i think he really does care about julia more honestly i think he oh, yeah. it's it's hard for him to admit to himself but i think that that's the reality of what we see in his character yeah, but even that's unhealthy. I think we both know that is that there. I don't think she's there for the money. I think she genuinely cares about him because there's this like ugh, just this which insane is really weird, by the way. There's fight no way. After, no way. <laughs> it's just no way. it's just so it's so whack a mole where that fight outside the club where he basically says get out of my apartment, get out of my apartment. I don't think she's a. I don't think she's a um, a gold digger by any means because obviously he doesn't have the money. I think she. I think she you know, hurt people hurt people. It's just like they're just they're insanely wrong for each other, which makes them right for each other because they're both just completely leeching off one another. And the the linchpin to that or the, the kind of the, the exclamation point is when she gets a tattoo of him on her. And I'm like, what are you doing? And he's like, what are you doing? He's Even like, he says, what, what are you doing? Yeah, <laughs> I know. It's and it's just these this couple is like. They need therapy. They really need therapy, but they're great for each other because of the fact that they're not, they're, they're both sucking the life out of one another, but it's not like one person is guilty and one person's innocent. I mean, they're both just sort of just sucking life out of one another. And it's such a contrast. Like when she breaks up with, or he breaks up with her because of her apparent affair, he goes back to his wife. Is it Dinah? I think Dina, Dinah. Anyway, Dina Menzel's character, and she just throws it right in his face. And I love that scene. She's like, what you're saying is completely stupid. I never want to be around you again. I could never believe. I mean, and she is so direct with him that in that moment, in other movies, 
you would see him go, you would see her probably soften. No, she's put up with this nonsense for so long. The fact that they are choosing consciously until after Passover to tell their kids that they're getting a divorce. It's like she's living in this, just this wacky world of like, she knows he's having an affair. She knows he's, he has a girlfriend and has an apartment. And for her to be able to just sort of sustain that, um, one of the moments that I, that stands out to me is when he comes back from his younger son's room and he asks her to turn on the TV and she's like, really, are you kidding me? (laughs) Like, like she knows that he's got the phone going on in the room and it's just, it speaks volumes to how oblivious he is to an honest to goodness relationship. She's stable. Her kids are somewhat stable. Julie is not. And I think that instability makes them right for each other. And it makes, it's just, it's like this weird matching unhealthiness that I think makes their relationship work. And not that they have a successful relationship. I think it would be an unhealthy relationship, but I think they would stay together for all the wrong reasons. So it's, it's hard to explain, but if I'm going to pick a a couple that's going to work in the most chaotic way, it's those two. It's, it's him and Julia as opposed to, to him and his wife. It's just, yeah. It's It's funny because I heard um, what you said wrong and I like the way that I heard it better. I heard you say ripe, like, a fruit oh, right. in, yeah. instead yeah. of ripe. So if they, they were ripe for each other, and I thought that that that's probably a better way to sense. Yeah. Because they yeah, are. Like they are yeah. the perfect point of like desiring that chaos in the other person. And it is awful and horrible. And I don't yeah. think he needs to be with anybody. Because <laughs> he's just, he's ruining the lives. And it's, it's, it's icky. All right. Well, uh, Kevin Garnett, big piece of this movie, big subplot. Um, I love that. I love the legitimacy that he brought to this i wanted to talk just real briefly about some of the making of stuff behind this so the safties actually had been working on this script back in the early 2010s and they've said that this was like their white whale and they fully believed that they would be 70 year olds saying to each other man we gotta make uncut gems like this was the movie they they always wanted to make they never thought that they could so originally back in the day Julia Fox was like 19 and this she's had an interesting life. So she was the she was a teenage dominatrix. She came out of a Catholic family. She's been an artist in various ways. She is very off the wall kind of from a personality standpoint. She made paintings out of her own blood at one point. They knew her as a kid, like as a younger person from their neighborhood. And they had always kind of envisioned this role would go to her but she wasn't an actress. And so this idea has percolated for, you know, six, seven, eight years for them. And they said initially they had written this back in the early 2010s with Amari Stoudemire in mind as the player that then time was passed. And so then they, they kind of thought they wanted it to be a big guy. So they thought about Joel Embiid and then he became a superstar. And so that kind of like time passed And by the time it got around to them being able to finally make the movie, they realized that due to the way they needed to shoot this, it really had to be an inactive player. It couldn't be an actual NBA star that was in their prime. And so they ended up getting KG to audition for this. They they talked to a couple different people. 
And they said when they met with KG, it was just obvious that he was like so charismatic and he just kind of had a natural ability and gravitas to him. And, and he was extremely, <laughs> his quote was that he was extremely hyped to work with Adam Sandler. He, he actually told Julia, Julia Fox on set one time, she was raving about his acting ability and the Safdies raved about KG's acting ability too, which personally I agree with. I think he's excellent in the film. And she said, he told her, I'm not an actor. I'm just good at taking direction, <laughs> which what is an actor? If not a right. person who is a performer that is good at taking direction, right? That's why you have directors. I just thought that was great. And, um, the, and they actually, they told a little bit of a story as well about how it was hard for them because they thought he was absolutely right, but they hated him. So they are diehard Nick fans and he has, ruined their seasons for a long time. <laughs> and so they literally, they said they went into their first meeting with him after he had been hired and said, I hate you. And we just need to get that off the table right off the bat that I hate you and I'm not over it. And so from a basketball standpoint, we're not okay, but we're excited to work together. <laughs> and I just thought I was like imagining this conversation between directors and Kevin Garnett. Right. <laughs> and it was just, it was, it was so cool. And then, they talked about how because of the timing they had to work really hard to find a three an actual three game set of nba games that would match up to what the narrative they had was which is one really good game by kg followed by a poor game by kg followed by an important another good game and then they kind of had to and it had to all be in the Northeast, which is why it ended up being Philly. It had to work within the like structure of the film and like where the travel element was. Like it had to be somewhere you could, you know, you could conceivably drive to Philly from New York and then back or whatever. Um, and so, I guess to Boston would be, which is that's that seems like a long way. But anyway, it, it had to be Northeast, so the travel could be at least make some sense. And I I don't know. I just thought it was the level of detail that they went into this and then like i said they had to work backwards to kind of decide what the bets would be based on his actual stats from those games so that the footage that they showed would kind of work out i just loved how that worked but yeah anyway i i really love his part in this and i think that having an actual nba star who actually acts and is can hold his own gave this such a legitimacy to it if this had been a fake NBA player, I don't think it would have worked as much as it did for me personally. Well, everything about that grounded it. So not only a real NBA player, but real statistics, real games. So we're not talking about just random exhibitions and things like that, or even Kevin Garnett playing a an, an, another NBA player or a fictional NBA player. I mean, all that had to feel authentic, and I think it helped elevate Sandler's performance, making that feel like it would actually happen in New York. And maybe it does. I mean, I'm assuming that some of this stuff is taken from actual truth, but this is less like the Sopranos and more like a kind of a realistic version of rounders where you have these types of areas in New York. You have, you have different kinds of uh, sharks and betters and places that you can go and adding Kevin Garnett to that. You could have easily just had him come into the shop and make a presence and then him being sort of the linchpin for that bet. You could still do that, but I think adding him as a character 
adding him as a key point to to the story really helped keep the pace as fast and frantic as it was. And that's what I think makes that conversation between those two near the end, right before the game, so compelling. It's because of the fact that you wouldn't think some jeweler from 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 New York is going to be like able to convince Kevin Garnett to have an amazing game. But clearly that relationship, it shows that Howard knows how to talk to people, how to talk to celebrities, how to talk to common folk, I guess you could say. Like even at the very beginning, when people come into his shop, the way he's able to show off that bling and be proud of it. I mean, he, he isn't asking for autographs. He's like, KG, what's going on? And he's just like, yeah, you're just, I got off the street and glad, glad you're in here. You know, you're with family, that kind of, that kind of attitude. So having Garnett in the movie wasn't just for celebrity and just for like, Oh, cool. The fact that he could act, the fact that he could hold his own made him feel like we're not talking because you can tell Aaron. I mean, you know, when you're watching movies with sports figures or actual athletes, when they're up against an actor, you can tell by the way they deliver their lines that they are definitely not actors, but they're there for legitimizing a football game or a baseball game. And uh, it, it didn't feel that way with him. KG felt like an actor playing himself in a way that grounded the story and it made that emotional connection, I think, that much deeper. Yep, 100% agree with that. And then to kind of follow up on just the casting and the other character stuff, so Julia Fox, who they, like I mentioned, they had kind of had their eye on, they actually said that they didn't think there was any way they were going to be able to cast her because she's a non-known actress and it just didn't, she's more of a, a serious, an important role to the film. And so they didn't think it was going to end up happening because she had no other credits. She screen tested with Adam Sandler, which is actually part of the criterion too. you get to watch this. And she blew him away. And, and she was it was like a no brainer. And I thought it was just really cool because I think that her performance is very good. And she kind of like KG, she has like this natural acting ability about her, which seems to be a common thing for the Safdie brothers in finding this. They actually, they are intent on looking for actors to fill some of the roles in their film that are not traditional actors or that aren't actors at all. So I learned that Phil, the guy who ends up shooting Howard at the end, that main heavy for Arno and his partner, Nico, Phil was actually a first responder, never been an actor before. And Nico was a construction worker never been an actor before and the Jewish twins who tried to collect from Howard, they have like real like balding spot and like scraggly, like silvering curly hair. If you remember those guys, um, they're not actors either. They never been in anything at all. So uh, these are just like people that the casting director has found and brought in to the set. And between them and the Safties, they're like, let's go. It's also interesting note that Benny Safdie operates the boom mic for all of their films. And so that's kind of how they handle their directing duties is Josh is kind of acting as a more traditional director and Benny is obsessed with sound. And he actually personally is the boom guy, which is wow. wild. That's awesome. And it just, it's really <laughs> neat. Yeah. These guys, I'm telling you, I, I sent you that interview and you're going to enjoy it. But like you, you know, I, I usually gain 
a great or higher appreciation for almost anything I watch when it has special features and director commentary and stuff. But I have definitely garnered a, a much bigger love for these two brothers and the way that they approach filmmaking. And it's it's a unique kind of style that they're developing and a, and a unique way that they look at the art. And it doesn't always work for me. They made a short film with Adam Sandler called, I believe, Goldman versus Silverman or something like that. And I didn't care for it at all. So it doesn't always work. But yeah, I really like them. And then I thought that Adina Mazel, again, also a really interesting casting choice to be someone that I definitely don't think of as a kind of hardcore Jewish mother. I think of her, right? obviously, <laughs> from her, you know, sweet musical roles, personally. But I thought she did a really good job as well. And Sandler, yeah, I, we haven't talked about Sandler. You want to talk about Sandler. So like, I mean, what is there to say? Is this his best acting performance for you? I think so. Um, I think he's in a, there's another, there's a Netflix movie that, that he's in recently, Ruthless or Reckless or something. It's a Hustler. football movie. Hustle. Hustler. Thank you. Sorry. Not, it's basketball. Um, Hustle. <laughs> my bad. It's something. It's a sports, another sports movie. Oh, boy. Hopefully he doesn't gamble his life away in that one. But no, I, I think, I think it's unfair to say this is his, you know, you, you have in the notes, you know, going serious again, like Punch Drunk Love. This is where I think I can respect Sandler for having range in terms of, you know, yes, he can be serious, he can be funny, but this is different than something like one of my favorite Will Ferrell movies, Stranger Than Fiction, where he has his comedic chops, but they're toned down. They're not all elf-like or stepbrothers where he's just completely obnoxious, you know, and sometimes that works for me. I like that in Elf. I didn't like it in Step Brothers, and it just, it's one of the, like, Grown Ups is another one that I enjoy. But you have these actors who are notoriously comedic by nature, Jim Carrey having his Truman show. I think that Punch Drunk Love was that for Sandler, but I think that this is probably his best performance because of the way in which he doesn't show that he's Adam Sandler at all. Like there, I, I don't, I don't hear the, ho, 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 and I don't know. you know, you don't hear any of that from the, from, from the jump. I mean, he's walking down there and he's dropping F-bombs on the phone and you're just like, you're in it with him. And I don't see happy Gilmore. I don't see Billy Madison. I don't see that early character in this and that's good but it's not a denial of that i mean i think you can do both and when you can do that i think that's what makes you a really well-rounded actor so does this give him a lot more credibility i think absolutely because while i think it's a shame to say that you can be funny it's easier to be funny than dramatic i don't think that's the case i think you have to have the right kind of acting to be able to deliver funny lines but i think the style of comedy that he does lends itself to feeling cheaper so when you watch a movie like uncut gems this feels like a serious departure. And I think that's what makes the performance that much better is because he's not leaning back into what is comfortable for him and what's comfortable for an audience three minutes into the movie. And I forgot that it's Adam Sandler. It's just, this is, this is Howard and his leather suit and his earrings and his, all his bling and his fast talking and his goatee and it's just really good like i even love the poster art whereas like when i first saw it i was like why does he have shaving cream on his on his lip and i'm like oh no it's not and you look at it really closely and you see he's bruised up and he's got it's kleenex in his nose because he's been i'm like when does this happen and of course we know when it does but it's it's one that i can respect 
less because it's not funny, but more because it feels more in depth and there's a lot of substance here with him. And I, I, you know, I'm proud of him for doing that. I mean, it's fantastic to be able to pull this off as an actor, not just as a comedic actor turned dramatic, but as an actor, because again, when you're talking about American history X, those types of movies, that's why I can respect Edward Norton as an actor, because you can go that deep and make me feel really uncomfortable. Christian Bale, American Psycho. What's it with these American yeah. titled movies? You know, is this American uncut gems? Is what we're talking about? Here? Oh my gosh! But, but, <laughs> but yeah, I, I think that he lives in that in that world for me with those other yeah. two guys. I agree. I'm, I mean, I think that it is probably his career defining performance, and I love the way that you just kind of described it as largely being because of the gap between styles it's a bigger jump than we typically have seen from actors so to go from what his norm is like a happy gilmore and a billy madison and a Waterboy to uncut gems is a much bigger change than most actors will accomplish in their careers period and it's so it, it becomes automatically one of his most deepest and dimensional characters. I mean, I thought he should have gotten an Oscar for it. I was definitely rooting for that. I don't think anything else comes close to it. I haven't seen Punch Drunk Love. I just know that it is largely regarded as one of his kind of best serious roles up until this point. But I do love this like run that he's on, like in Hustle. Hustle's very good, and it's a good, it's a solid performance. I mean, there's, I don't think it's anything near this type of layered type of character but it is very good and i like this sandler who is doing things more dramatic and they have like a, a tint of comedy to them but they're not it's yeah. in different ways right the one thing we didn't mention that i just wanted to real real briefly touch on is that the way the movie opens i just love the opening scene and i had forgotten all about it and so there's like an 11 minute kind of intro to this film from the moment it starts where there's a, a score in the background. So the score doesn't disappear for about 11 minutes. It's a beautiful kind of synthy, kind of quiet synthy score. Oh, yeah. But it starts in Africa, and you briefly touched or mentioned this, and I had totally forgotten that that's how it started, Patrick, that it sets the stage so well by showing us this very real diamond trade that exists with workers being taken advantage of and injured on the job and and obviously not being looked after and we already know what's going to happen like this very expensive gem that they find is going to make its way now to Howard and I loved that they take a moment to come back to that and Howard has that conversation with Kevin where he tells him straight up he's like there are black Jews in Ethiopia and I was able to pay them essentially $100,000, track them down, pay them $100,000 to get me this million dollar black opal. And Kevin calls him on it. He says, you gave guys from Ethiopia. Well, he doesn't say guys, but I'm not going to repeat it what he says. He says, you gave these guys from Ethiopia $100,000 for something that you thought was worth $1 million, And you're okay with that? And Howard's like, that much money for those workers, and he breaks it down as like $10,000 each. He's like, that's enough for them for a lifetime. And KG is like, so is a million dollars. Like, you're exploiting them, <laughs> right? But you are acting like, and I, they don't go into depth on this, but I thought it was enough 
in depth. Like, you know, that could be a whole serious movie. Like we've seen in blood diamond or something, but like, I like that they actually at least acknowledge that this is a real thing. And there is a piece on the criterion edition that talks about this. There's a history channel episode or like story about black Jews and how they have been enslaved essentially and used to as these workers, right. In horrific conditions to mine these gems and jewels, which they will never see any bit of wealth from, but for the work that they're doing. And it's, just a good reminder that even though this is a black opal, it is kind of like a blood diamond too. And that, you know, it's almost like the idea of a cursed stone right. following with it, yeah. you know, resulting in all of this horror for Howard. And, it, and yeah. it's kind of like fate in a sense. And I, I don't know. I just, I love the, but I love the way the movie opens with that because it sets the stage for what we're about to see. And I love that they, they do mention it later in the movie as well. Well, and it also sets up the way that he gets the package. It's not a standard package. Like, it's inside a fish. <laughs> and, I yeah, mean, that's and, right. and, and what you, what you <laughs> infer right. is that he smelled it. It's not going through customs, right? It is not like it. a legit se- – Or he caught it. Okay. So maybe the fish is <laughs> yeah. worth one million as well. It's a, <laughs> it's a, it's a black opal f- trout or something. I don't know. But, but we get a lot from that opening of the package. We get his obsession. We get – what you mentioned earlier about what he anticipates that meaning for him, but the way in which it was transported clearly was not legal. Clearly this is nefarious. And while he probably did pay hundred K to these workers, he, and he worked hard, did the research and everything. This was not like a legitimate sale by any means. And so that thing was going to be cursed from the very beginning because whoever owned that is going to be like, where did this come from? I don't know what, what came up. I mean, KG got it. And, you know, obviously, I guess it made his career because we saw what happened after that. So whatever. <laughs> but yeah, it was great. Great opening. Yeah, definitely. Well, that'll wrap up this edition of Feeling Film. Next week, we are staying on the couch and checking out Netflix's newest animated feature, The Sea Beast. Adventures on the Water and Carl Urban at the helm? Yes, please. That'll do it for us. Aaron, thanks for another great conversation. We'll talk soon. Hey everyone, thanks again for listening. If you enjoy the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. These help increase visibility for the show and grow our community of listeners like you. We also invite you to connect with us further by joining our ever-growing Facebook discussion group. A link to that is in the show notes, or you can just search on Facebook and find us that way. If you'd like to continue the conversation with me, you can follow the show on Twitter, at Film or connect with me in the Facebook group. I'm very active in both places and would love to chat. And if you want to connect with me, you can find me at Shoeless Patch on both Facebook and Twitter. Be sure to tag me in any comments so that I'll be notified and not miss you. Once again, thank you for listening. We'll be back soon. Until then, stay positive. And keep feeling filled.